0: Sahana
1: the topic for today Savanagh, is a very interesting yet obscure term found in the occurring in the Upanishad, specifically the Taitariya Upanishad. It's also there in one more Upanishad, I think the I You have to check and see. I have a concordance, Upanishadic concordance that list the number of words in each which time how many occurrences so we can consult that and see (coughs) so this important yet slightly obscure term is swarajya you know raj to shine And Raja is it's a word that doesn't require translation. It has made it into the English dictionary. Yeah. What is Raja? Kingdom. King. King. Raja of or belonging to the king. As in kingdom. So, uh, the... The word swa plus rajya. swa means oneself. rajya kingdom. One's all kingdom. And uh, we have also another term which is similar. Swarat. You know? Swarat. And uh, virat. Swarat which is the same thing. And uh, so Raja, Raj to shine. Swaraj or Swarat, self shine. You know, the, in other words, self shine is a kind of a funny translation. (laughs) (laughs) The self effulgent self or the shining Self better. That which shines without any aid from anything else. This is a continuation of the morning class. Okay?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, this occurs in the first chapter called Valli in the Taitri Upanishad, Shiksha Valli, which is a preparation, primarily a preparation for gaining. The knowledge, how to prepare oneself. And then once one is prepared through numerous practices, self disciplines, practices, and ways of just calming down basically, how to not freak out is shikshavali, how to have a certain say over one's mind, one's emotions, and one's habits, because the habits, you know, are, uh, they have a colonizing tendency, bit by bit, that's why it's called habit, and, uh, and one wears it like a co- cloak, that's why also it is called habit, yeah. So, These orientations, which are habitual in nature, they are the ones that come out first, even though one is not there anymore. One has grown. One is not there at all, but confronted with a familiar situation. Familiar means what? Familiar in the sense of provoking. Kind of a situation where one is provoked. So confronted with that kind of a provoking situation, one does not respond from the present self. What does one do? One reacts out of the sense of the habit. You know? Yeah. And then one, you know, has a face-palm moment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> face palm is all Indian. <laughs> yeah, they call it face palm. This yeah. is what it is. Yeah. Yes. I know, we we the patent rests with us. <laughs> you know. <laughs> patent for face palm rests with us. Also, palm trees also rests with us. Yeah. So uh, anyhow. So that face palm moment, like oh why did I do this? I knew better. How could I have done this? How could I have been so stupid? I mean, I'm not there anymore. I have grown. I know better. You know? And I was just two minutes ago priding myself on how accommodative I had enough. <laughs> how calm, how patient, and how non-reactive. And now, suddenly, this, this habitual attack has unloved me. Yeah, but that's natural. Pride always comes before a fall. (laughs) That's very natural. And so, this is the, this is how one is blindsided by these, these strong habits that keep uh, repeating. Strong, very strong orientations. And the Shikshavalli, the first chapter of the Taithari Upanishad tries to dislocate not so much the habits, but one's identification with those habits. Oh, but then which chapter of the Taithari Upanishad dismantles the habits? No, that is you, Yeah, you have to do the work, you have to dismantle the habit, but you get a little help from the Upanishad. It jiggles the habit, it unnerves it, it rattles it, it stuns it, it makes it temporarily unavailable for uh, action. It's stunned. And then, you know, you have the time to then slowly drag it into a storeroom and lock the door. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Temporarily put it out of commission, you know and then work on it afterwards. So, the term swarajya would have, you know, it, it occurs in again, it doesn't occur at the beginning or at the end particularly, I think the sixth uh, subsection, mm-hmm. it occurs at the, uh, at the, towards the end of this first chapter. And I think it would have largely gone unnoticed had not Adi Shankara picked it up. Adi Shankara picks up this term and he says quite a, a few things about it. He says that the term is not worthy. Swarajya or self-sovereignty is not worthy because it is the promise of the Upanishad for the people studying this knowledge, you know, and such promises when they occur in the Shastra, they are very auspicious moments because what is life without promises, mm-hmm. yeah, promises is what makes life, we look forward to, you know, promises, even the currency is called a promissory no, <laughs> it's a promise. You know, and that's why we don't call in India, we don't call it bill. Yeah, that's uh, in America. We call it one rupee note. This is a point of note. Yeah, and, uh, we call it one rupee note because it's called note because actually it's just an IOU. It's not really, we don't call it bill. We call it note because on that it says, I promise to pay the bearer the sum of so many rupees, 50 rupees, 1 rupee. But what is that? What is that sum? That's sitting in the bank in the form (laughs) of gold. A gold standard. And this is a promissory note. Very interesting. Yeah. That's why we don't have to say in God we trust all <laughs> the money. <laughs> in gold we trust. <laughs> I put an L. L D. Yeah. <laughs> Practical. Yeah. Because Lakshmi is the manifestation of gold. So in gold we trust. No problem. Huh? And therefore, this is, you know. It's very interesting so even in the transactional reality it's all about promises marriage what is it other than a promise you know no matter what happens one says with gritted teeth i i'm going to be with you for the rest of my life or your life whichever comes first <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: marriage is a promise and when children are born that's another promise You know, you promise to take care of this. And then, you know, in in Western countries, if you don't take care of the child, it is taken away because you're not fulfilling your promises as a parent. So marriage is a promise. You know, in other words, all relationships are promises. I have promises to keep. Robert Frost said that. Yeah. Robert Frost said, I have promises to keep in a poem because that's what differentiates a, you know, an ordinary you know, person from a poet. You know, an ordinary person is not going to see the, 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 uh, the profundity of this whole thing. But a poet is called Dura Darshi, the one who is able to see more than what there is. So this is all promise, promise, promise. But the promises are always broken. <laughs> <laughs> but still, no matter how many promises are broken, we don't stop wanting them. All the life we keep making promises. And in fact, all of our uh, Itihasas, epics, are because of promises. Without a promise, would there have been Mahabharata? No. Mahabharata starts because Bhishma in his youth, at that time he was called something else. He makes a promise, I will never marry so that, you know, the kingdom can go to your your children. That's when he gets the title Bhishma. means he made a frightening promise. And then Mahabharata, another promise, you know, words that are kept and Ramayana promise and so it's all about words kept and words broken and mostly about promise in the sense of commitment and if there is one word that describes the Hindu dharma and the culture, it is commitment, really. In other words, promise. It is commitment. Because one is committed to one's duty. One is committed to the earth and the environment. If one isn't, one should be. And one is committed to Bhagavan, to finding Bhagavan, that is Brahmavidya. One is committed, you know. And... This is what marks the tradition and marks one's growth in the tradition because once you have given the word, you have to keep it. The given word, the given promise. And so in other words, you're not just waiting for the promises made to you to be fulfilled. That's not the commitment. The commitment is for you to fulfill the promises that you have made so you can't just say i'm going to do this i'll be there somebody says you know come i'm having vedanta satsang in my house please come (laughs) yes yes i'll come then what happens don't come person doesn't show up then you meet the person somewhere and you are afraid to ask why didn't you come (laughs) you don't ask But they volunteered the information. You know, I was about to be there. (laughs) And then suddenly something happened. And then after that, suddenly something else happened. And after that, something else happened. And then, you know, I just could not come. You know, there is a series of stories, you know, with a little bit of garam masala on top of it. (laughs) And... uh, This is what is a you know this is the difficulty because once the word is given, it is very difficult to keep. And the given word is the is the hallmark of a Hindu. What makes a Hindu a Hindu is that commitment to the given word. That is what it is. And where do we learn this from? In the Shastra? The Veda promises, if you do this, you will go to heaven, you know. Oh, me, I'd like to do this and I'd like to go to heaven. And then the, you know, the small print is also laid out. You can remain there as long as your good merits last. After that, what happens? You know, you have to come back in some form or the other. And you have to keep doing the same thing, and so the the first portion of the Veda also promises promises, you know what I mean? You know there are so many promises. I'll be with you forever. Yeah, right. You know that's a promise, and uh, I'll you know I'll just do this for you and that for you and all these things. I promise to bear you know pay the bearer a sum of one rupee. You take that, uh, now you don't even find the one rupee note. Anyhow, some some uh, elderly people may have collected, you know, in their puja room. So you go and get that note and take it to the bank and you please also take a microscope along because the amount of gold, even if they give, if they don't <laughs> laugh, uh, you will need a microscope to see the gold. <laughs> Correct? And so, really speaking, the promise means what is... What really? it? we need promises. Why are we a culture of needing promises? We have to discuss this before we can go further. We are a culture of needing promises because all these promises that are made do not suffice, including and right up to the promise of heaven made by the first portion of what Bhagavad Gita, no Veda. Veda, just checking. Ah, so the first portion of the Veda makes a promise. Respite from samsara, I hate samsara. You know, you draw a heart and put a line across it. <laughs> yeah, that means you hate it. And so, I hate samsara. What should I do? And here also there are promises. Even here on earth, there are promises. Because that is the ultimate promise. Because this is what, you know, all the promises go and, you know, rack up to this only promise right there. What is that? The ultimate word, the ultimate promise. Because, you know, anybody, if, if, if somebody says to someone else, the promise of marriage, for example, or any kind of commitment, friendship, etc., partnership, then I'm going to be be with you forever. What stands out is what? Forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Forever. And so, really speaking, these promises, in a promise-driven, commitment-hungry culture, this commitment is not for the sake of the person or for the sake of a thing or for the sake of a relationship. The commitment is really forever. Mm. Commitment means forever. Promise means forever. Mm. Also, really, the final promise is that forever that I seem to want, that I insert in all the things that I want. And all the things that I think can make me happy. I think I told you, a 12-year-old wrote to me and said, BFF, Swamiji. You know, I said, what is this BFF? Best friends forever. (laughs) So, it's the forever that matters. Everybody knows this. Because everybody is a mumukshu, a seeker of forever. is called mumukshu. And a mumukshu is one who feels that the forever is always outside the bars of my cage. (laughs) Because in every way, that forever seems elusive. I catch hold of something and drag it inside the cage and it suffocates and dies. And then, (laughs) yeah, breathes its last. So, what to do? Where is this forever? So, I keep thinking that if I collect a lot of promises, then, you know, I'm okay. Including the promise that I will be lifted out of this horrid place where everything, this place is a bedlam, a mayhem of what? Broken promises. (laughs) And where the forever becomes not forever. And where the, you know, the finite is infinitely spread out and parading, masquerading as the infinite. Forever means infinite. Forever is what I want and what I want is right now and what I want is forever. And that forever I seek, wherever it is not. (laughs) This is the travail and the Lament of the seeker called, the seeker is called Mumukshu. So the seeker feels like there is no room here. You know, there is no room at all. I need, I need freedom. Because I feel imprisoned by so many things. The bars of the cage, somebody said, another poet said, Stone walls do not a prison make, nor do the iron bars of a cage. Then what makes the bars of the cage? Broken promises. (laughs) That's what makes the bars of the cage. And you keep counting, ah, that also didn't work, that also didn't work, that also didn't work, that also didn't work. This is the bars of the cage. And in a way, I am behind bars and then, you know, feeling and keep looking out for anything that's going by. This is called Ajagara Prithi. (laughs) Ajagara means python. You know, you you either run after the prey or you sit and wait for the prey to come. You sit and pray. (laughs) (laughs) And then the prey comes the python sits, the python doesn't go hunting. You know, And the python sees the lion and says, oh, you poor thing, you need to eat every day because you run so much. Me, I eat once a month and I'm fine. <laughs> I don't need to run after like you. You know, I just lie down and just, you know, pretend to have a glazed look and, you know, just lie down, lie in wait, literally. And then some lunch walks across. <laughs> yes, mobile lunch. <laughs> take away. And I take it away. When I sit. You know, so this is what the seeker who feels imprisoned does. Outside the bars of this cage are so many. What? So many ways to come out of the prison. There are people selling saws. Mm. Made of cotton, you know, fleece. (laughs) Fleece saws. Yeah. What can you saw, you know? You can't saw anything. Yes? Question? Did you have a question? No. No. So, And then, you know, those fleece saws, uh, uh, you know, can be be akin to all the things within samsara that one is offered that doesn't work. Touch the nose, touch the toes, do shirshasana. Shirshasana is highly recommended. (laughs) Anything that brings blood flow to the brain, we love as a preparation stand on the head, catch the nose, catch the toes, but not as a, as a panacea for this feeling of imprisonment. So this feeling of imprisonment, the experience that I am imprisoned, there are lots of things, the fly-by-night operations that come up. Somebody is uh, selling a wool saw, fleecy saw. <laughs> Another one is you know, saying... You know, you just have to meditate very hard and then the bars will disappear. And then the third one is saying, forget that, you know. While you are behind bars, I'll show you a movie. and You'll just forget yourself in the movie. And then what? So many things are there. There are malls, there are balls, there are movies, there are Let's not forget the restaurants, yeah. (laughs) Although, even though you go to the restaurant, in a way, from the standpoint of the imprisoned mumukshu, it's always ordering in. (laughs) Because one is in. And one feels there is no way out because the forever is forever out of my reach. And then there are religions also that come along and say... I have the solution. You want to be saved, let me save you. The first portion of the Veda also is counted here. You you, know, you just bear it for the rest of your life, however long it is, don't worry. And here are a few sticks and a pot of ghee. Keep offering. And keep, you know, you homa yourself out of the prison. Yeah. And then, where will you go? Huh? Swarga, not Swarajya. Swarga. Go to heaven. And this is another promise. A respite from these, this imprisonment. Go to heaven and do what there? Oh, you know, uh, depending on the religious tradition, there are certain activities There. (laughs) (laughs) you sit you know you sit in beatitude you keep staring at bhagavan keep staring at god and you make direct eye contact and you know and you feel very blissed out and then what or you can take the hindu heaven you, you it's full of concerts yes <laughs> one day dance concert another day music concert third day some kind of a play Yaksha gana, because yakshas are there. And all these things, you know, you just keep going. Unlimited tickets. Unlimited tickets to entertainment? Well, there's a little catch. What's the catch? Your own good deeds are the tickets. That's the ticket to heaven. That's the ticket to all the enjoyments in heaven. And when the good deeds are gone, what happens? many happy returns <laughs> that's what it is yeah many happy returns and i really have problems with you know i i think it's fine to say happy birthday because something was born you don't know what but something was born <laughs> But to say many happy returns is very (laughs) depressing. Especially if you know a little Vedanta, you wish the person by saying many happy returns means last life also you were here, this life also you are here, and God only knows how many lives you have had, and still you have not got the whole point. Many happy returns. (laughs) It's slightly depressing, isn't it? Ah. So, So, therefore, you know. So the, the, you know, the Hindu heaven is a promise that of a temporary reprieve from the, the prison. And what is this prison? The prison is the desire forever, where the desire is not the prison, the morphing of the desire into various activities to gain that desire is the prison. And so, the first part of the Vedas, which is all a treatise treatise of desire fulfillment, is nothing but a series of promises, each of them non-verifiable. What is the verification that if I keep offering gobs of ghee, I'm going to go to, you know, what is the, you know, how do you know, you know. This is is illustrated by a story. There was one king called Akbar in medieval India. And he had a minister whose name was Birbal, who was very uh, dear to the king. And so he had a lot of enemies who wanted him to be eliminated. And they would keep hatching some plot or the other. And in this instance, you know, one... Barber came who had psychic who professed to have psychic powers and he told the king that you know your your uh, grandfather or your father is in heaven and he's very lonely and he's seeking you know somebody to liven him up I think you <laughs> should send Deval <Birbal. laughs> To heaven, And I know how to send him, you just put a hot cauldron, make a fire and everything <laughs> and put him in it and he will go to heaven I will chant some mumbo-jumbo and he will go to heaven. He will keep company to the father. The king must have been quite gullible. He said, oh, what a fantastic idea. Let's do it right now. And Birbal knew, oh, poor king, you know, doesn't have enough brains. I have to see what he, he doesn't mean to do this. And he's really believing this. And so, he made some prep He asked to have enough time to say goodbye to his family, made some preparations, like found out where they are going to keep the cauldron and cho- replaced the cauldron with the one with a false bottom and then escaped through their a tunnel there. It was, it was a very busy week. <laughs> so, he made good his escape and nothing was in the cauldron. So, and then they said, oh, he has ascended to heaven and... Uh, The king said, I will miss him, but my grandfather will have him. I'm so happy because he's such an entertaining fellow. He's full of wit and he's so brilliant and wonderful. So three months go by and then Birbal comes back. (laughs) Birbal returns and he looks shocking, usually very well kept. He looks so unkempt. He has this horrible beard and his hair. And he comes and greets the king and he says, what? Who are you? I'm Veerbar. Look, look. <laughs> and he peers through all the facial hair and he says, what happened to you? You? Did, I thought you went to heaven. Yes, but I came back. How did you come back? Just how you sent me. <laughs> <I came back. laughs> In another place, another cauldron was invoked and I just fell inside it. <laughs> And uh, why do you look like this? No, I came immediately to see you. I didn't want to waste any time. So what's wrong? Why are you like this? What? How is my grandfather? He's fantastic. He's wonderful. He <laughs> said he sent me back to you. He said I can't keep you know my grandson's uh, you know companion and entertainer. So you please go back and advisor. Then why do you look like this? I told you, I came straight away. There's only one thing that's lacking in heaven. (laughs) What is that? Barber. (laughs) Please send your barber. (laughs) You know. (laughs) And then another cauldron was prepared. The barber didn't have time to leave town, he was caught, and then he fell at the feet of the king and asked for pardon and was banished from the kingdom to complete the story. But really, this is a non-verifiable belief. I mean, you can tell anything, correct? (laughs) Non-verifiable promise, right? And so, therefore, we want an ultimate promise, not a promise that leads to other promises of freedom, of fulfillment, of the bars of the cage being dismantled. We need an ultimate promise. And therefore, we we'll go to the ultimate portion of the Veda, which talks all about the ultimate, as you. So the forever that was being sought is what? Is right here, right now. So what happened to the cage? You know, that's a cagey situation. we we'll discuss that very soon. The cage, like the ocean in the morning class, is but an ocean. So, in, the, in this context, I'm giving you the context of the term Swarajya coming. that Swarajya and what it means is the key to come out of this cage, the master key. The master key that is with me, but I don't know it is with me. This is what is the whole thing. And the context of it is very beautiful. It says that with the a, a person of prepared mind, apnodi gains swarajya. Hmm. Gains swarajya. Gains self-sovereignty. Because if you have an overlordship over certain things or people, that is again a limited promise. A limited arena. To exercise that overlordship. So one is not happy with these limitations. And so therefore, nothing suffices except that freedom which I am seeking through the words forever, words such as forever, commitment, complete, limitless, free, happy, joy, etc. These are all you know, the colloquial synonyms of Swarajya. And so, this Swarajya is a promise in the Upanishad, unlike the other promises, which in fact become the bars of the cage. You know, promises are broken when one promises something that cannot be delivered. That's right. But this promise is unable to be broken because what it promises is already delivered. This is the difference. very fantastic because you can have two kinds of promises. one promise is that which is yet to be delivered, which is always in the future tense I will do this for you. And here what is you know what is the promise, the second kind of promise, is that which is already delivered, you know. A commitment which is already delivered is simply a restatement. And so the Upanishad, in all its glory, that is describing the glory of the I, is simply a restatement of that glory, which is beyond words and it doesn't need words because it is you. The words are needed only to remove the notions. The bars of the cage are dismantled by the word saw. Yes. Jigsaw. (laughs) (laughs) Word saw. Really? And that is the pramana. And that is how the pramana, pramana means a means of knowledge. A way of knowing operates because... It dismantles the problem because of which I feel imprisoned. There are two ways of taking care of the problem. I can paint the bars of the cage so that I'm not bored, (laughs) you know. I can look for things outside the bars of the cage, look to be rescued and then there will be promises of deliverance, etc., etc. Or what? You can make the bars of the cage, can falsify the bars of the cage and show that these bars, you know, are not really there. It's a distortion of the vision. In fact, the bars are painted in, the, in front of the eyelids, not up there. So the bars are some kind of a funny cataract. <laughs> Because cataract means I can't see at all, right? That's why people go in for a cataract operation. And, but here the problem is not that I the vision is completely impaired. The problem is I see in between these bars. I kind of see enough to know what to want, but then that vision of how to go about it is occluded. And What? I, the treasure that I'm sitting on, I keep seeking for it elsewhere, except where it is located. In fact, that's located right here. in the, You know, it is available. Located means it is available. thana, it is available where the search for it is cognized. Where the seeker is cognized, the sort is also cognized right then and right there. So, this is what is the promise in the Upanishad: Is that, you know, all kinds of riches are there. And these riches only serve to make you impoverished. Because one doesn't stop becoming a beggar. Even the richest person is a begging person. You know, begs for this, that or the other. And so, therefore, the Swarajya, the kingdom, is... Not, you know, gaining overlordship is something which is very dear to everyone. Having control over my life and over lives of at least a few other people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Otherwise, well, it's not worth living. Mm-hmm. I should say, sit down, and few people should sit down. <laughs> okay. I should say, stand up now. Don't sit down. Okay, they should stand up. You know, and I should say a few things, and everybody should obey then only life is worth it. Otherwise, what's the point? No point. It becomes boring. And But then, are you happy with, you know, a few people listening to you? Are you happy? Well, no, I wish a few more. <laughs> I wish a few more people. You know, maybe I should become a motivational speaker. And then when I have a motivational speaker, then... You know, motivational means that person has motives. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. motives of overlordship. That is a motivational speaker. Then more people will come and listen, and then I will I can just wax eloquent. But then I have terrible stage fright. What to do? You go to that uh, class. What is that class? No, yeah, and masters. Sure, ah, toast, toast, <laughs> toast, toast, master. You clink the glass and then you stand up and say things extempore. Just stand up there and make up stuff and then make it look very interesting and then memorize a few jokes and then, and then what do they teach you? When to say the appropriate joke, you know? Yeah. And how to deliver the joke. And how to have a pause before the punch line. <laughs> keep people waiting in anticipation. And they also teach you, you don't ha- laugh helplessly over your own joke. <laughs> That's not going to help. You should learn here from our English brothers and sisters. What is that? Dead pan (laughs) face. Yeah. And then you deliver it. Let other people laugh. You don't succumb to your own joke. All this they teach. Then one becomes a motivational speaker. A speaker with motives. Yeah. And then what? Before only the family members were listening. That too out of obligation. (laughs) And now a few more people are coming because, you know, Their karma, their money karma had to get exhausted at the door. And so they had to pay to listen. So they sit and listen. Are you happy now? No, 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 no. I want few more people to listen to me. You know? And few more. No, no, I I need to become big. I need, you know, a better manager. Somebody said that recently. You know, it's all the fault of the manager. You sack the manager and get a new manager. And then everything will be all right. Are the things all right now? No, no, they are not all right. No, I have to become the biggest and the best. You know, if you have to quote unquote become the biggest and the best, you will, it will always be an unbecoming pursuit. Udaram <clears> antaram kurute bhayam bhavati. The same Upanishad in a later chapter is going to tell, that when you are, even when you are the big, supposedly the biggest and the best, there is still a big regret of all the things you could not be. Because all you have to do is look around, and even if you don't look around, you look within, and the mind always, always comes out and says, "But, but, but you are not this. But, but you're, but you are actually a sham. <laughs> you just masquerading. <laughs> You're not really as good as the the Google tells you, you are. (laughs) So, So, this is, you know, one kind of temporary Swarajya, but then, you know, that doesn't suffice. One is, one cannot control how many people one can influence. Swarajya really means overlordship of oneself. Because that overlordship is very important term. It's called in Sanskrit, Aishwarya. Ishvarasya bhava, Aishwarya. And that Ishvarasya bhava is very, you know, important. It's, pa- it's a paramount desire is to be like Ishwara, nay, to be Ishwara.
0: Hmm.
1: So the, the desire for control is the desire to be God. Hmm. And that's built in. It's not that only people, you know, who are supposed to be belong to the Hindu tradition have this desire. Everybody has <laughs> it. Everybody has it. And all too often, unfortunately, we have seen the wrong ways in which it, it is played out. Hitler, Mussolini, on you know, <laughs> and that uh, Franco, uh, you know, all these people we have seen what happens. So that desire for domination. Is because there is no dominion within that has been mastered. Mm. So it's a it's a it's a pure and clean psychological projection of not seeing that what is already here needs to be looked at. This desire for overlordship and domination has to be interrogated. And if you look at the cause, it's very, very clear because one feels like a failure, one feels like a big loser. One feels like I am up to nothing, one feels insecure, one one is always criticizing oneself, one is never satisfied and therefore this whole thing becomes a very important thing to look at because all these feelings are universal. Thankfully, you are not your feelings, (laughs) so therefore we can have the conversation. (laughs) You are not your feelings because you are the observer of the feelings. You are the observer of your lack, you are the observer of your insecurity, you are the observer of your vagueness, you are the observer of your doubt, you are the observer of your own ignorance of what? Your own self. So being the observer, you you know you are you are very much not what you observe. When you say I am sad, you know that's a that's a lie. <laughs> No, 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 you don't know my life. (laughs) That's not a lie. (laughs) I am sad. But think about it. I am sad, what you're actually saying in that sentence is, I am the observer of the sadness that I have been experiencing. You are not what you observe. Oh, really? Yes. (laughs) So when you say I am sad, that's, that means, you know, it's just a short, short, uh, you know, it's like saying lol. Is lol? <laughs> ah, and then uh, all these things, you know, <laughs> OMG.
2: Yeah, it's like saying
1: OMG. It's that short form language used by the uh, teens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah short form language used by the current teenagers. Even adults use it. So that's all it is. So I am sad. I-A-S, you know, (laughs) really, you know, what it really means is, that's a new one. (laughs) So, what it really means is, I'm observing this emotion within me. Who is the observer? If the observer was under the spirit of the sadness, you can never say I am sad. In fact, I am sad is a big lie. You can't. I am bad, even bigger lie. I I am bad, another lie. It's all your own observation of the stream of the mind that is just, you know, keeping on churning out thoughts from the treasury of the unconscious. (laughs) Yeah, that's all it's doing. You know, in olden days, if you want to make music, you have to keep turning something. So it's a sad music, you know. So really speaking, the desire for domination and dominion is, is because one feels out of control within. So it's a pure psychological projection. One feels so out of control. That I th- I think that by controlling of more and more things that I can somehow become important, become invincible, become great. And that's why these kings had this Alexander the Great. Yeah, great what? Great at what? You know? <laughs> Alexander the G-R-A-T-E grating on my nerves. <laughs> yeah. Great Britain, yeah. I always say, you know, India has been colonized by everyone starting from Alexander not so great to not so great Britain. (laughs) That's what it is. So all this great, you know, the great is what? Great is not an epithet to be had by engaging in certain activities. Because that greatness will always be finite. Because you're dealing with action. This is really a continuation from the model. <laughs> <laughs> and finite, action is finite. Strength is finite. Resources are finite. Resources and strength make up the raw materials for action. Action is finite and therefore the results of action are? Finite. Finite. That's what it is. It's simply what it is. But what am I seeking is not finite. I want to be infinitely in charge. The only, only entity that is infinite and infinitely in charge is Bhagavan. <laughs> so I want to be just like Bhagavan. <laughs> you know, I want to be what God-like. Nay, I want to be one with God. You know, this is what the whole thing is. That is the uh, that is the ultimate desire. And for that ultimate desire, the ultimate promise is akno this Swarajya. This is what it is gains and it's it's a gain of something that is already gained but not understood not seen not assimilated not internalized why don't forget the bars of the cage bars of the cage in which i find myself imprisoned in a in a prison of limitations body itself becomes a limitation you have to drag it around after a certain age yeah <laughs> You know, don't even talk about the mind. Let us just say, never mind. You know, senses are a limitation, you know. And everything is a limitation. And all these limitations, if they were to define me, one is doomed. And so what comes in the way is not the limitations themselves, but taking them to be myself. Having a certain identification with those limitations is is one of the bars, the main bar of the cage. That's what it is. And so, Aknoti Swarajyam, this term, comes at the end of a long discussion of how to prepare the mind and prepare the body to shed its prison the body-mind complex, to shed the prison of its own making. And here, all the so-called penances, austerities, religious disciplines, etc. are for the sake of preparing the mind to shed this prison, which is ultimately shed by what? Studying the Upanishads. That is what it does. But even to study the Upanishad, a few bars have to come down. (laughs) Yeah. Because otherwise, this is one, you know, it's like a catch-22. For the bars to come down, I have to study the Upanishad. In order to study the Upanishad, some of the bars have to come down. Ayo, where to go now? (laughs) Yeah. But the catch is as though. Like everything else terms we need to know to call yourself a Vedant. What are they? As though though (laughs) rope snake, pot (laughs) clay, rope snake, as though what else? You know? So, Jeeva, Jagat, Ishvara, you just (laughs) keep bandying these terms. And you become a Vedant. So here, coming back to this, this is the catch 22. How are we going to get out of this catch? The bars have to come down, means the I have to make a little leap here and see how my life can be led in a way that is conducive to assimilating this knowledge. And here is where we can help ourselves to some of the things that are talked about in the Upanishads and in the Bhagavad Gita. How to ready myself for this promise? Because the promise is the ultimate promise. It's a big promise. First, I don't even believe it. (laughs) i don't believe that if i just study this the bars will fall off and then i will no longer desire world domination because i'm, I'm just so one with all <laughs> my glory and this swimmy feeling of just being one with everything and i don't believe this and so by in terms of preparation the upanishad says shraddha one word yeah What is the translation of Shraddha? Reverence. It's not a belief. It's a faith pending understanding. You have to have faith. But it's not a non-verifiable belief here because it's a promise that's already delivered. It's like you have ordered a pizza. It has already come. But you don't know where it is. You have to look for it. You know, and you're looking in the wrong place. In fact, you've already assimilated it.
0: You know?
1: That's all it is. And so therefore, it's a faith-pending understanding. Shraddha. In fact, it is nothing but trust. Trust is shraddha. And it is, it is a tall order. Why is it a tall order? Because trust is, the, the, you know, it's not, to, it's easy to say, but very difficult to de- develop. Very difficult to develop trust, especially because the universal experience of everyone is what? Broken promises, <laughs> which leads to what? Distrust and allergy with the word promises. itself. <laughs> Starting with the parents, you no? Yeah. Starting with the parents, it is very apparent that nobody is delivering on the promises. Yes, yes, for your next birthday you can get that. You know? <laughs> and then what? Oh, this time we don't have any money, you know, and it's not growing on trees. And so, you know, you know, why don't you just earn some money and buy that yourself if you really want it? And then broken promises, broken promises. You know, like this, whole childhood goes. Mm -hmm. And and the parents who are supposed to protect and who are supposed to be the caregivers, they have more problems than the child. (laughs) And so they certainly don't deliver. And the child is helpless, it has to trust them. You know, they look strong and big, they seem to walk around fine but suddenly they fall sick oh no what's going to happen to them and suddenly they are in the hospital suddenly something happens suddenly they go away without telling you where and even if they tell you you don't understand so it doesn't matter but these are all the ingredients for broken promises and all this it's like a build up you know, build up. It's like, you know, the, the word plaque is very much in, <laughs> <laughs> very much in, uh, in, in vogue. From the teeth to the brain and the bones, there is everywhere there is plaque and the ha- arteries. Yeah, everywhere there is plaque. And so, this is a plaque of distrust, building up, building up, building up, suffocating the person so much so that you don't trust anybody and anything. Leading very conveniently, we are segueing into what is called a DIY culture. Another shortcut for do it yourself. But there is no DIY Vedanta. Vedanta means, you know, cleaning this plaque. That's what it is. There is no DIY Vedanta because the DIY, the do it yourself, applies only to to things that you can actually do yourself. This is not a matter of doing. This is a matter of uh, knowing. K-I-Y, know it yourself. (laughs) Very clever, but no. (laughs) You can't know it yourself because the means of knowledge available to you is inference, is direct perception, various kinds of inference, comparison. All these things are useless because we are talking of the nature of the perceiver, the nature of the inferer who cannot be objectified. You can only know things that you can objectify. So, where are you going to go? You know? Upanishad says, come back to mama. (laughs) 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 Come to mama. But I hate mama. I don't like mama. Mama was very disappointing. She did not protect me. She did not, you know, show me her love. That is what it's going to take in terms of homework, is to dare to trust again. Without Shraddha, you can wave goodbye to what? Swarajya. So, arājya is that promise of total sovereignty. And since the self is total, it is self-sovereignty. It's not just self-sovereignty, you know, I'm just the master of my body, mind, my little body, my little mind, you know, no. Here the self-sovereignty, the self being everything, is, is, is a total sovereignty that is promised. The first thing, that one has to develop. Now we are, you know, now we are in the favorite portion. I'm just, you know, telling where we are. We are in the favorite portion of uh, of the talk for everybody, which uh, which can be deemed practical tips. <laughs> practical tips for r- removing, dismantling, the bars of the cage, correct? Right? Yeah. So one is shraddha that these bars will disappear. One is shraddha. How to develop shraddha so that the bars will disappear? We need a bar uh, of mental soap <laughs> for an inner shaucha that distressed is gleaned away patiently. Patiently cleaned away, slowly erased, you know. And that, you know, is, is to have a commitment. Here you are the one making the promise to settle accounts with Mama and Papa of the universe. Because the personal Mama, Papa... Dropped you as a child, (laughs) (laughs) refused to pick you up, up, left you there and all the caregivers disappointed. And that is the disappointment and hopelessness one carries. That's why everybody has a personal rain cloud. And if you confront the mama and papa, you know, they are 80 and 85. (laughs) And if you confront them, you know, they are going to say we did our best. And have some gratitude. We fed you, clothed you in great, we educated you. And and that you're able to speak so eloquently is because of all that we did. Go. You know. Po. Po means go. We yeah. are not going to stand up for this. What can they do? You cannot, you know, they are not available. All that, that valuable person, at that time, whatever they did, they are not available to resolve those issues. And by a very interesting, you know, this is another kind of a deliberate transference. The whole life is led in transference. First transference, you know, I I confused mother and father for God and thought that they were infallible, and they'll take care of me and nothing will happen to me. Wrong. Correct? (laughs) The fallible I confused for the infallible. And then what? Where is the search? The search is for the infallible. So therefore I have to transfer the pain, the fear, the distrust, and the ashraddha, which is distrust, to the infallible. I have to lay it down at the altar that is infallible. This is what it's going to take. Because the promise is waiting. For that that promise is not a non-verifiable belief. It is proven. it It doesn't even need proof. It is already proven. It is you. And that you is the one that you desire to be. And the you that you really want to be. And the you that you delight in, that you you want. And the you that is one with everything, that is not asconce or awry, you know, at all. It belongs everywhere and with everything. It is in harmony with everything. That's what everyone wants. Every researcher, even if one is a scientist, a scientist is a rishi, very close to all manifestations of Bhagavan. The researcher also is looking for similarities, pattern and oneness. I mean, that's what, those are the kinds of proposals that get funded. If somebody was going to say, I'm going to study how this is very different from that. <laughs> that is obvious. The the trick is... In erasing the apparent differences, going underneath the apparent differences and, and fi- finding out some oneness, finding a pattern, finding a connection. And for that, you know, one has to hear, here the connection is, to, is with the infallible because that's what the baby was crying for. And mistaking the infallible, it, it did its own projection because it didn't know any better. We thought, oh, they look big, they look strong, and I, I have come from them. So they must be, they must be the source. They were just a resource. But the child, you know, they were just outsourced by Bhagavan. But you know, they but they the child makes the mistake of thinking. I Again, mean, it's all a superimposition. The child has made the mistake of confusing the fallible for the infallible. And as an adult, one backtracks, and then what? And all the fallibilities, my own omissions and commissions, and the omissions and commissions of all the distrust that, of people around me that has led to this distrust is reckoned by leaving it at the altar that is infallible. If we say that God is infallible, it's yet one more setup. Because then the the word infallible becomes subjective based on what I want. So whenever God, you know, answers my prayer with a yes, yes, he's infallible, he's infallible. If the answer is no, you are fired. Somebody told me, I had a guru. I said, you know, they asked a question, somebody asked a question at some conference. And I said, where do you live? And they said, said, do you have somebody that you can study with? No, I had a guru, but I fired him. (laughs) So, (laughs) this is the thing, you know. Yeah, I'm learning all the time. Yeah, this was something very new. Yeah, of course, I was very curious and I asked. I gave the guru the pink slip. You know, need not come from tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, and then what did I say? I said the guru is not for hire. <laughs> <So> cannot be <defy laughs> hired. <laughs> yeah. So the bridge from you know from distrust to trust. How is it made? Through deliberately trusting says the same opposition. Shraddha, Shraddha. Cross ashraddha with shraddha. Cross distrust through trust. Build the bridge of trust by daring to trust. No, but I'll be disappointed. No, you, you know, deal with it. No, but it is very sad. I don't think I can survive. These are all, again, all those notions. And so this is the whole, you know, this is a, a chant in the Sama-Bedha. Setu mustara tu mustara 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 Run. cross the bridge. Cross the bridge. What kind of a bridge? A bridge that is difficult to cross. <laughs> cross distrust with the bridge of trust. Yeah. Distrust means hopelessness. Distrust means apathy. Distrust means why should I even bother to try? This trust means a notion of failure that is hanging around me all the time. Wherever I look, it's there. So much so that I start missing it. Oh, you're there. Good. You know? <laughs> Keep looking for it because I, that, is, that becomes my habit. You know? And Adi Shankara, when you look at the story of Adi Shankara, you know, he had a, you know, he overcome, overcame his own uh, quote-unquote demons by having imaginary friends. One was called fear and one was called death. Mm -hmm. And he created them in order to overcome his fear and his fears and fear of death. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So this is what it takes. One has to bridge that distrust and you won't be disappointed because we don't say that God is infallible, we have to turn it on its head, that which is infallible is Bhagavan, is God. The definition of God is that which is infallible is God. So where infallible means it's a law, mm-hmm. I cannot help it, this is how it is, I cannot change it, it is, it is how it is, it is how it is manifest, it is how it is in my life manifesting. That is what is infallible. And whenever I confront the infallible, I'm confronting Bhagavan. And so that infallible becomes an altar to receive my distrust. And it's not going to talk back. (laughs) Thank God. Yes. Thank God for small, small mercies. It's not going to disappoint because only when it it talks back, it can disappoint. You know, that's why all the iconography in the Hindu Dharma, they have smiling beings. <laughs> yes, yes, wonderful. You are okay. But I don't feel okay. But you are fine. No, but even in my last life, I didn't feel fine. <laughs> what to talk of this life. You'll be okay. You know? And so that becomes a very interesting transference of this distrust. I stopped owning the distrust. I say, here it's yours, take it. (laughs) I don't want it anymore, I'm sick of dealing with it. You take it. Somehow you are involved in me having it, you take it. Because you are the author of everything, you know. Why not you also take back the distrust, which you may or may not have authored, I don't know, but here it is. I don't want it, take it back. And so, the distrust is, is is a bag of limitations. And this bag of limitations is surrendered at the altar of what? The limitless. When limitations are surrendered at that which is limitless, what remains? That which is limitless alone remains. So that's how the the limitless includes limitations and transcends them also. So this is what this is what it's going to take. I have to backtrack that distrust and I have to learn to trust again and I learned to trust by helping myself see that there is hope, that there, there is this desire, this desire to be free of the cage and this desire for mastery and there is hope because that hope is what is going to prepare me for the knowledge. And that hope is very swabhavika, it is natural, but, but it has been damaged by distrust. So I have to, you know, CPR <laughs> the hope, give CPR to the hope, resurrect it back, and then I feel that I'm able to see what there is to see. This is not one more going to be soon broken promise. That's a negative fantasy. This is what whole life is about negative fantasies. You imagine things that are not there and thereby relive all the pain like repeatedly. This is never going to happen. It's not going to happen. It will never happen. Not happen for me. Everyone else will get moksha. I'll be the only one left behind. This is this is the hopelessness and the a, a antidote for hopelessness is Shraddha. That is the first and very big point. And then what? Swarajya, self-sovereignty. You know, we start practicing small. First, we have to take care of the self that I am able to objectify and see, you know in terms of the connected to this own body mind sense complex so how to gain mastery over the self is is to is to do the things that are needed so that there is no room to do things that are not needed in other words keep it simple yeah simple the best things in life are simple <clears throat> right? You don't have to pay to enjoy a sunset.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you just have to go to the right place and then just stand there. You just enjoy the sunset. You don't have to pay to, you know, go to the ocean. You no, know, this beach is privileged. You know. <laughs> when you pay, you have better access. You know, what's the difference? You no, know, this beach is free of riffraff, you know. <laughs> the are notions. And. Uh, So there is a certain way in which, you know, again when one thinks back to childhood, one's own or even when you look at a child, the mind of the child is very simple. It's not thinking complicated things. It's not thinking what does this person who is approaching me want. How should I defend myself? How should I ward off this? How should I conserve my toys? And how should I lock them up so that nobody else gets them? How should I lend out my toys and charge something each time that another child plays with it? How should I have an international toy exchange? The toys that I'm bored of, I can just have other you know, people come and you know, give this. This an ecologically minded socialist child, you know. <laughs> yeah, international toy exchange. <laughs> the child doesn't think like that. There is a certain spontaneity. Again, this is all based on that trust. The trust is not yet withered, not yet jaded. The child is not yet a jaded, faded jiva. So things in life are very simple. If it is hurt, it cries right then and there. It doesn't look for when is a good muhurta to cry. (laughs) If it wants to laugh, it laughs. If it wants to just be, if it wants to go to sleep, it goes to sleep. You know, and that is something which is lost in this distrust and hopelessness and apathy. So, everyone is an old soul, really. Yeah, everyone has been born so many times that one is so jaded, one has lost touch with that spontaneity. So, keep it simple. And if there are two solutions to a problem, choose the simplest one and the most direct one. You know, it's like the difference between feeding yourself like this as opposed to <laughs> bringing the hand all the way around simple things. Why make life so complicated? And now we have all this, you know, we have to be very careful because we have all this gadgetry. And we think, oh, if I have a smartphone, my life will become simple. <laughs> yes? No. No. <laughs> because it's not just enough to have a phone. Then you need, you know, then the then you need a then you find out that the battery, you know, is is it's just a leech, but it's called battery. <laughs> and then you need to buy something that uh, feeds the battery. And then you then you have something else that's attached to that. And then you have, you know, the phone is not enough, then you have to get some apps. And then you have these, you have to keep downloading the apps. And then you keep downloading the apps, and then you run out of space. <laughs> Then you have to buy some space in the cloud. (laughs) And then that's not enough. Then you get a message. You have to buy more cloud. Yeah. (laughs) All this. Is this simple? It's not simple. So I'm not saying don't have a phone. That's not what the thing is. But that's not going to make your life simple. And it's very, the the, the whole thing of this technology is very alluring because it appeals to our instincts to simplify. And the feeling is that they will take care of it. So that's why it's called iPhone. Yeah, It's an extension of you. (laughs) You know, iPad. If I don't have it, I'm mad. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it is. Yeah, I... I, uh, Saw so a joke, you know, this uh, ha- harassed looking father with three, four children at Christmas. And then one of them says, Oh, daddy, thank you. iPhone. It opens and sees iPhone. And then another child, Oh, daddy, iPad, thank you. And the other one says, Oh, iPod, thank you. And the father says, I paid. <laughs> <laughs> Really, what it is? All these gadgets, all these things, and I'm I'm just using the gadgets as an upalakshana, which is just an example. Upalakshana means example. It's an example to see how we complexify everything, you know. And in the West, you can't do anything without buying things, you know. That's how it is. Even to meditate, what do you need to meditate other than you? You know, tell me. No, no, no. That's not the way. You have to buy a cushion you know, and it's certain plump and round, you know, and it doesn't go down like other cushions, you know, I, I don't think uh, there is one here so I can't demonstrate, you know what I'm saying, like this, why, because when you sit on it, you are a yogi, you know? and the spinal cord is straight, for the linguini to rise.
0: <laughs> so,
1: so this is what it is. supposedly. So you need that cushion. Without that cushion, you can't meditate. Whatever you do is not meditation. And then what? You know. Then you you then there are other distractions. The car went. Somebody came. Phone. Bell. You know. And so many phones. You know this phone. That phone. Everything keeps ringing. So, what to do? I need a bell. Ding! (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's a special bell. You know, handcrafted bronze all the way from Tibet for a large price <laughs> because some of them sound horrid so you have to go and you have to ding it and you have to massage it in a certain way and you have to bring out that sound and um, then you do that then if you just keep it on the floor it will not sound like that it, ha- it also has a small cushion <laughs> so you have a cushion for yourself a cushion for the thing and then if you have a pet that also should be keeping quite a cushion for the cat and the dog something to keep it quiet and by that time all the desire to meditate is gone. And same thing you take yoga. Yoga is such a culture it's like you know they make you feel like you need all kinds of ropes and bands and you know (laughs) blocks and bricks and you know big bats. That's all. (laughs) This is the this is just sort of getting slipping into that culture of complexification complexity because one is not with oneself, one is not seeing that really self sovereignty is not leaning on capitalism. <laughs> it's not. It's very simple. If you want to meditate, just sit down, meditate, doesn't matter where you are. Close your eyes and start. That's all it is. If you know it is a certain way, it's just really, it is, it is simple. And uh, it's not a particular. means of whatever, it's not a particular thing that is talked about in the Shastra, but I'm culling from a lot of different things. You know, we are talking of Shama, Dhamad, Titiksha, Bhuparati especially, Bhuparati, all this. Simple. When you keep it simple, there is focus. So that is the second. Finally, the final thing is to reduce the strong Raga and Dresha within. Because that's a very important preparation for sovereignty. Because as long as all these binding desires are within, you know, what happens is that I become a person very difficult to deal with. In fact, I have to be dealt with all the time. Because I'm never happy because nothing is right. It's never right. Things are never okay because... I have a big baggage, a wagon, a covered wagon of ragadveshals. <laughs> 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 covered means sometimes I also can't see. it. Yeah, and this I regularly unleash upon others, and expect them to, you know, satisfy as a proof of their love. That's not love. If I fulfil someone's ragadvesh,al that means I love them. That's not love. That's ranked codependence. You know? And we are very familiar with that. That means enabling. That's not what it is. You know, love is unconditional. It's not that it has to be, it is conditioned by my, you fulfilling my wishes. That's not love. So all these strong preferences and strong prejudices, they have to be, you know, curbed by not indulging in them. This becomes a part of the self-discipline. Because if you, in, uh, if you indulge in them, they grow fat. <laughs> yes, yeah, they become obese and they sit on your head. They take over. And if you don't indulge in them, you know, they become anorexic and wither away. That's what it is. You don't feed them. And in India, we have a very beautiful, you know, culture. The whole culture is like that. It's a choiceless culture. You know, you, you, you go to a, you know, just a regular, rural <coughs> hotel and say, I'd like to have tea. They're not going to say, you know, calf or decaf. With or without milk. Milk or half and half or cream, <laughs> non-dairy cream creamer. <laughs> with sugar or without sugar. And if yes, with sugar, what kind of sugar? You want, uh, you know, sweet and how low you will go. <laughs> or uh, you want another poison called aspartame. Or you want another something else, so leaves powdered, leaves called stevia. Or you want this or you want that. You know, this is another—it's a confusing array of choices that are really oppressive. And unfortunately, we live here and we have to confront. We are confronted by this every day. Keep it, again go back to point number two, keep it simple, (coughs) keep it simple. No, but I never drink tea without, with sugar. Well, too bad you're in an Indian house, what you get is, you know, this is what it is. Tea means with sugar, with milk, this is how it is. It comes with one thing that you wanted and three others that you did not want. <laughs> in plenty. Yeah. So you learn to live with it. You learn to take it. So you override the likes and dislikes. That's a very great bridge to self-sovereignty. Because already you start feeling better when you're not leaning on the crutches of your ragadveshahs in order to, to lead the life. You feel infinitely better, because you, you are okay no matter what. No, I have to sleep here, I have to have this, I have to do this. You know, this is a very big burden to carry. And sometimes people feel very proud of their Radha I can never sleep without this. It's like the princess <laughs> and the pea situation. <laughs> yeah. And this princess had a horrid night. Why? Because she, she was, you know, being uh, tested by the prospective suitor whether she is a real princess or not. And the princess tossed and turned all night because she was sleeping on nine mattresses, and underneath the bottom most mattress, the suitor to test her, the prospective prince, inserted a small dried bee. <laughs> the next morning asked the princess. How did you sleep? Oh, horridly, she said. <laughs> this was the worst night of my life. And then he went down on one knee and said, Please, <laughs> marry me. <laughs> you are a real princess. Yes, you are a ragged controlled queen. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. Control
1: queen means controlled by Ragadreshas. He'll come to my world, he said, because he also was cool <laughs> of Ragadreshas and was wanting a compatible partner. <laughs> He also couldn't sleep with the pee, and you know yeah. that's why they are called grim fairy tales. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Extremely
1: grim, and they are all of oh, them so scary. I don't know that they. I don't think they are made, meant for children at all. Yeah, horrible things: people pricking fingers, and people you know fainting there, and blood, and all these horrible ghouls and monsters and goblins, and you know all kinds of things. And so, you know. This is this, the, the Ragadvesha's a grim tale of life. Really, the Ragadvesha's are reduced in, in very easy ways. One is, you, when the Ragadvesha attacks, when the preferences and prejudices attack, we are talking of the binding kind with the things you feel you cannot do without. You start, get, get up and do something else. I really have to have this, go take a walk, you know, go, go to the gym and do something there, you know, I don't know what, but whatever, <laughs> machine is your choice. Yeah. Or then, you know, you go and clean something up, that's also very nice, you know. Vesha attacked, you clean something up, put something away, that is one way to, to ward it off and when you do it uh, three, four times then it's, it, it, the attacks are fewer and less frequent. That's how you master the ragatvesh as one method. The second method is keep yourself busy doing what you have to do so that you don't have to think about it. And the third method is substitute. Substitute with a less uh, threatening form of something you know that you can you know enjoy doing. Nice thing is to you know switch on a Vedanta class. No, 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 I'm not there yet. You know, say so something. Get <laughs> <laughs> there. Get there. Switch on a Vedanta class and maybe you will only listen to five minutes and maybe that's all you need because you hear something. Oh, that's what it is. It's a reminder. Oh, yippee. So switch on the class, do something. And, you know, and slowly what happens is you find that the things that you bo- used to bother you don't bother you at all. Already you are a baby, you know, Swaraji. Yeah, (laughs) you are a baby Swarat. Yes. And you are already kind of a master. You are on your way to self-mastery. And then what remains for the Guru to do is to show you that the self is all through the unfolding of the Shastra. But first one masters the miserable self, you know. And then you find that it's one is not miserable at all. The small miserable self, if one masters, that is it. Either the misery is gone. All that is there is just one is you know, one is a person. You don't have to be dealt with at all. Before, when you came into a room, people held their breath, waiting to exhale. Now they just heave a sigh of relief. Oh, it's you! Come on. I don't have to worry about where you sit or what you do. You will be at home because you are that's the that's the blessing. Swarajya is being on the, you know, is, is the fruit of swarajya is being at home with yourself. And if you are at home with yourself, you are at home wherever you are, the self-being, everything.
0: Om questions?
1: Yes. Purnat mother, poor Purnasya Om Shanti 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 Hari
0: Om Hari Any it, came to me, um, and I don't know why I haven't thought this before, uh, so when, if you're observing the stream of the mind and you realize that you're lost in some sort of delusion, like identification with an unhealthy emotion, right? I am sad, Yeah. If, if you're able to stop it in its tracks yeah. and, and kind of be a Vedanta and, and really identify it yes. as a delusion, yes. Is it the buddhi that is deluded? Is it the manas that is deluded? Yeah,
1: it is a combination. It is the manas, buddhi, both. And? It is actually the ahankara that is deluded. Okay. I notion. And? and so even the I notion places itself in the middle of sadness, then it is, you know, it is, it is, uh, it concludes I am sad. Because the I attaches to the sadness which it is observing. Which it forgets that it's observing, so it goes back to observing, and then you know disowns that sadness.
0: So when there's a countering to to the misidentification, yes, what feature of the mind counters? Is it the buddhi that counters the deluded? No,
1: the sakshi, the witness, um, the sakshi.
0: The, the, the it,
1: ahankara morphs into a sakshi with your help. With the help of the buddhi. So that
0: the healthy thinker <clears throat> is really the sakshi. In yes, the,
1: the sakshi okay. is the witness. Okay. So the journey to swa- uh, Swarajya is from witness to witness.
0: <laughs> <laughs>